This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. New revelations about one of the biggest names in rock music. Skirmishes greet the holiest day of the Jewish calendar in Israel. It is unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12, usually in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. So, we have decided to take the whole idea of Sukkot and Ushbizin and <laughs> guests a bit too far, like a notch up, I'd say. We what, have. What have we not d- done so far, we said to ourselves? Selves, we said. <laughs> no bungee jumping, no tandem parachuting yet. No swimming with dolphins and no recording together in the same room up to now. Up to now, we are not in a sukkah, we should stress that, but we are both in London. Uh, we are side by side here in the place where I usually record all on my own. Instead, we are two people together, two Jews on the news in one pod. This is very uh, exciting, by the way. Don't peek at my notes. I am now realizing <laughs> that I have, look at my notes. I'm on, uh, we should say, some, something of a family vacation, which should be clear by the fact that I wrote my notes on a the other side of unicorn coloring pages. And I have, you know, and you're peeking it. So this is, okay, this is this usual, not an unusual setup for us. It is, because we're letting daylight in upon magic here, because normally (laughs) it's a mystery to me how you prepare and produce the goods week after week, Yoni Levy. And yet now Mm -hmm. I can see how it's done, which is scribbled notes on the back, as you say, of children's coloring in pages. Uh, It's very, very high level here. Um, And now, and you, forget, you know, the breaking the mystique for you. You are now in this room, which I really let hardly anybody see because it is, in my eyes, such a terrible mess of an office. Piles of books and papers everywhere. Normally no one is allowed in this room to see the chaos I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. There's so many books. It's overflowing with books. Yeah, it is. It's basically an uh, unfiltered and unsorted library we're here. So we are going to talk for, I mean, we're going to talk. We have to do the Jewish thing and ask how is fasting. I think it was possibly my best ever fast. And instead of celebrating that, I just worry because there's always a worry. But I have got progressively better and better at fasting as I get older. And I now think the fact that suddenly there was a category leap, it was even easier this year. And that makes me worried that I'm entering some sort of geriatric state <laughs> where fasting becomes you know, almost natural, uh, like as if the sort of body needs less and less to function. So I found it very, very easy this year. I feel for teenagers, I think, find it the hardest of all. But for, what about you? for you? Well, How did I, you manage? I found, I, usually it's pretty easy for me. Um, this year, for some reason, I think I know the reason I had trouble with the only thing I really had trouble with was caffeine. I was like, I needed coffee. And I think, and I, no, I I just think I probably sort of my intake is a little exaggerated. And I've, I've talked to friends and they were like, oh, you you know, you need to lower your intake a few days before Yom Kippur. I was like, huh, I never thought of that because I never had that problem. So I'm now, yeah, that was my Because we didn't have actually our usual unholy traditional, uh, by now traditional conversation before the fast of tips of how to fast. I didn't tell my story about Morris Davis, who always fasts on just two boiled Boiled eggs. eggs. (laughs) Didn't tell those stories. (laughs) Um, 
But I did get a message from you on your way here saying, forget all the stuff about microphones and headphones and how we're going to record this. Have you got coffee on? And uh, the caffeine addiction did kick in. Um, So you left Israel behind, but when you left, the sort of dust was still not fully settled Mm -hmm. on what... uh, people have been calling the sort of Yom Kippur skirmishes. I mean, this is, of course, the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, where Israel was fighting and caught in a surprise attack by its external enemies. But Yom Kippur, the 50th anniversary one, was not a sort of moment of peaceful contemplation and unified reflection, but instead something else kicked off. Yeah, I mean, there's, as you said, the holiest of days. And what we saw was um, really angry scenes and fights and scuffles and friction. Actually, in some cases, I think people on both sides, you know, crying, really. And what happened, essentially, in the center of this was uh, in Dizengoff Square in uh, Tel Aviv, where the Tel Aviv municipality uh, decided that you can't have uh, segregated or separated, uh, rather, prayers in a public place. We should say that most denominations do have them, those kinds of prayers inside the synagogue. But the Tel Aviv municipality decided that you can't have that in a public sphere. Um, there was a specific organization in Hebrew called Harosha Yudi, maybe the Jewish head would be the literal way of it. Sounds strange uh, in English. But what they wanted to do is have this kind of separated uh, prayer. They also petitioned the Supreme Court, which denied that, but they set it up anyway. And then in in, in certain areas, groups of essentially affiliated with the protest movement, uh, you know, got into these kinds of skirmishes. Look, this is something you really don't want to see, not inside Israel, not looking from a diaspora. And I think that the responses to it, you know, first of all, I think it shows just how divided Israeli society is these days. But the responses, I think, are something that we should look at. So first of all, Netanyahu said left-wing protesters uh, were protesting against Jews. We see that the extreme left has, you know, no norms, and this is not an exception. So this is regular rhetoric from Netanyahu in, in recent years. We should also say that Benny Gantz, who is the something of a de facto leader of the opposition, although not, you know, officially uh, said that this was a provocation. It doesn't really matter, though, Jonathan. I mean, even if this was done as a sort of provocation, it's still something you don't want to see. Just in terms of the provocation, I'm interested in the decision by the Tel Aviv municipality Mm -hmm. to ban, in effect, public prayer. No, not public prayer in separation, not public prayer in general. They didn't want in a public place to have a separation, uh, a gender separation between men and women. So were they, yes, absolutely. What led them to make that decision now, or were they themselves also firing a salvo in the culture? Well, this is an organization that came... You're asking like the kids like to ask who started, right? In a way. So the the organization itself, this Roshi Houdi organization, wanted to do this prayer uh, this year. They have examples of of several other years, but they did it not only in Tel Aviv, we should say. So if you're asking the question who started, you can point the finger at them Again, it doesn't really matter. The result is something that nobody really wanted, uh, which are these skirmishes. I think we should notice uh, what one particular politician is saying. Uh, it's not a name that's very known uh, outside Israel. This is Chili Troper. He's really the right-hand man of, of Benny Gantz. He's from the kind of liberal side of religious Zionism. He thinks that Ben Gvir is a stain on Israeli politics. And he said, he wrote a, in a sort of painful post on Facebook, he wrote, you know, we've been trying to bring in the people 
I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. We've been trying to bring in the moderate rights, the moderate religious people into our group, into the camp of the anti-government, the anti-Netanyahu. If you will make this into just a religious, a secular against religious, or Tel Aviv against other parts of Israel, you are going to lose. That is essentially what he's saying, meaning that this event is kind of showing us that the protest movement has arrived at a fork in the road, right? That they need to decide, are they going towards this sort of moderate compromise aspect of it or a more radical, you know, fighting mode of it? And when you say he's from the sort of liberal wing of religious Zionism, you mean they're the movement rather than the political the, party. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's important uh, to say. Small right? R, small Z, as right. it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the fear that this, what has been until now, a battle over, you know, the role of the court and over democracy. No one wants it to become an internal religious war. Right. And that, in a way, that remark there is a kind of warning of where this would go. When you say, and people have been calling them skirmishes, I mean, was there a threat or, you know, beyond sort of the odd scuffle of this turning into full-blown violence? I think it could have turned into full-blown violence in the, what you were seeing. I mean, look, there are pictures of, of you know, prayer books being torn on the floor, feeling pulled, you know, people cry. It, it wasn't, it could have turned more violent. Uh, and I think that's a scary, it's a very scary prospect. But just the imagery itself is just very sort of distressing yeah. and on Yom Kippur of all days, a, mo- a point where everyone else in the Jewish world was, was if they were observing it, were reflecting and were meditating, if you like. And uh, this is sort of a, a very, very bleak contrast. Um, there was a little gift for Israelis in a very quite a practical way, but also has huge diplomatic and political significance that came out of the State Department, it, namely the uh, Israel being accepted into the Visa Waiver Program. That's that list of countries, mm-hmm. uh, Britain is one of them, that where you can enter the United States without a visa. You have to fill in a form online and that waives the necessity. But there could have been quite, quite a chutzpah if they would have decided that Britain needs visa. Like, that would be like a little bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know. We're kicking off the king and you guys need visa. We're kicking out the king and you need visa. Given that you need to show your passport now to our 27 nearest neighbours, thanks to (laughs) Britain's own decision to exit the European Union, I wouldn't have put it past us to manage to uh, lose that right too. But no, America uh, uh, granting uh, Israel entry into the visa waiver program, seen as being a sort of one of these long in the works things, but nevertheless, a bit of a diplomatic breakthrough. Uh, It was certainly presented that way by Tony Blinken as a sort of positive gesture. You and I, and with our guests over recent weeks, have been talking a lot about the American-Israeli relationship. Just last week, Joe Biden and and Benjamin Netanyahu met at the UN in New York. How should we see this? Should we be seeing this as, yes, just the outgrowth of long, many years of, of, of diplomatic sort of shuttling at a lower level? Or is this part of that game of chess that's going on between Biden and Bibi about how, you know, who's making nice with who? That's a very good question, Mr. Friedland. Let's let's start <laughs> with what actually happened here. This is a few years in the making. It started, I think, seriously with the Bennett, uh, I want to say administration, with Bennett as, as prime minister, uh, because essentially, why is this become possible because Israel agreed that Palestinian Americans, that is Palestinians living in the West Bank that have American citizenship, can travel freely 
to Ben Gurion Airport and then fly out. That is the one thing that Israel agreed to. Bennett agreed to it as prime minister. But of course, the last person, you know, the last person to open the jar, it doesn't matter if there are 20, 10 people trying, the last person to receive this gift is, of course, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. We should maybe uh, also uh, remind our listeners that after he won the election and before his government was sworn in, that's when the legislation could have passed. He kind of pressed pause on that for a while. Uh, I remember talking to that with Tom Nyes, the then ambassador uh, to Israel, and then waited for him to assume office and uh, give this gift. I think that the other question we're asking, which is really important, is this is obviously a very big gift from the American administration. And the question is, why give Netanyahu that gift? I would guess that the answer to that is that Netanyahu will give the uh, Biden administration some sort of maybe acquiescence Uh, vis-a-vis the Iran uh, deal, and either tacit approval or vocal approval of the issue of enriching uh, uranium on Saudi soil as part of the Saudi deal. But anyway, he will have to give something in return for this huge gift. Yeah, I did wonder, though, actually, when you're dealing with Netanyahu, and I'm sure Benny Gantz and the others would say this to Joe Biden, you should be the one to give your payment after you've received the goods (laughs) from Netanyahu. This seemed to me a little bit of a mistake. I don't want to say Joe Biden's been a friar here (laughs) and a bit of a sucker. But whenever I read this thing of, oh, now he's done this, Netanyahu will have to give something else in return. Mm, I wonder. He may just put that in his pocket and then say, what have you got for me next? Uh, If I were Biden or advising him, I'd have said, do this visa waiver program thing after uh, BB has given you something. If he hasn't, there's a risk that uh, that you look like a patsy. The other thing that was mentioned is that uh, Joe Biden is going into an election year and just would like to shore up the votes of you know, Jewish Americans and others. I'm not really buying that partly because of the timing. I think if you were going to do that, you would do it in, you know, the spring of 2024 rather than now feels a bit early for that and also i'm not sure how many votes really it moves um but he's now done it and uh yeah he'll we'll have to see if he fares better than the likes of benny gantz who themselves also gave netanyahu what he wants and ended up feeling very disappointed so let's talk about what the jewish world is is looking at usually it is israel there have been a lot of weeks like that recently but I think now there is a specific story, or rather a specific documentary, and this is a documentary about Roger Waters made by really television legend here in this country. John Ware is an award-winning investigative journalist uh, for many, many years with the BBC investigations program Panorama. He has just made a new documentary online, which has already made waves within hours of its release. John Ware, welcome to Unholy. Good morning. It's very good to be with you. So the new film is called The Dark Side of Roger Waters, Roger Waters being for many years the frontman of Pink Floyd, the group of disbanded, but he continues to tour uh, and has made a whole lot of uh, controversy. The film is, we'll get into exactly why in a second, but the film's unusual for you because it's not for the BBC, it's for a campaign group, the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. Just tell us, first off, before we get into the content of it, how that came about. Well, I got a tip a few months ago that um, some emails existed in which um, uh, Roger Waters had referred to to Jews as kikes. I didn't know any more than that, except obviously that kike is 
about as bad as it gets. It's, you know, Ku Klux Klan territory with that sort of terminology. So I was keen to uh, try to see if I get my hands on it. And uh, cut a long story short that I did eventually. But I didn't do it through the BBC because I, I, I didn't think the BBC would do this story. Not, not because they, you know, don't want to expose anti-Semitism. They do, but it just didn't fit into a, into the, the sort of panorama format. So anyway, I took this to, um, a charity, a UK based charity called Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. Um, because they do, they are quite well resourced and I knew this was going to take quite a lot of money to, you know, put together a film and they have funded it. Um, it's a very low, low budget film and they've taken the legal risk. Um, well, as indeed have I, I suppose. And, um, that's how we got it on air. There, there are two sort of key witnesses in this, um, film. One is Bob Ezrin, who's obviously a music business legend in his own right. He's one of the producers of The Wall. Um, and, and Norbert Stachel, who is his saxophonist. And we'll go into what they say. But the one thing I sort of had in my head watching it was, why now? Or maybe rather, why wait so many years? There are people who worked for him for decades, with him and for him. Well, it's a good question. Uh, um, people are very apprehensive. I mean, we spoke to one or two other, you know, former members of his band. People were apprehensive about, A, first of all, talking, and then particularly going on the record. Um, Roger, so I gather, is a pretty litigious individual. Uh, so it took some, you know, it took some persuading. So, I mean, they, I think in Ezrin's case, particularly, he'd had his sort of fill of waters prancing around, you know, various platforms in Europe and the UK, talking increasingly about recycling tropes, uh, particularly in relation to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And um, he had a, an obligation, really, as someone who knew Waters, and also because he's Jewish, to speak out about it. And um, it was just the right time, I guess. Well, let's just get into what the sort of key revelations are that you make in the film via these two key sources, these two people. What is it they tell you? about Roger Waters that was not known before? Well, I think most many people had suspected that Roger Waters had, as it were, got a problem with, with Jews. Beyond some of his, his own recordings, where he, he spoke in a very conspiratorial way about, you know, sort of Jewish, particularly Zionist alleged omnipotence and those sort of classic tropes. We hadn't actually got any evidence of what he said in private. The new material really um, is, you know, first-hand witness conversations that Roger had with our witnesses and others about Jews. Particularly, for example, um, they were at a Lebanese restaurant and uh, Roger's, um, many members of his band were, were fed up because they, the waiter keeps bringing vegetable dishes and not meat and they wanted meat and 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 so roger when this hapless waiter brings yet another uh a dish of vegetables roger uh, uh, apparently explodes and says 
what's with this Jew food? Take this Jew food away. Why vegetables are, are Jew food as opposed to any other sort of food, I, I really don't know. But um, that that is what he what he's alleged to have said. And and the, so Norbert, the saxophonist, spoke about how uncomfortable he felt. He didn't feel he could express his Jewishness without getting, you know, sort of quizzical looks from more snipey remarks. And he tells another story of how, what sounds to me, frankly, a bit like sort of baiting. Roger likes to, so it is, and this is, we got this from several members of his band, he likes to sort of hold these large dinners and you know very good dinners Uh, but there's Roger at the head of the dinner table holding forth and um, he picks on Norbert uh, Statchel the saxophonist who hasn't been with the band for very long and he says Norbert uh, tell us a little bit about yourself Uh, and so Norbert starts to tell uh, everybody uh, that um, uh, you know his parents uh, came I think from Minsk and from Poland um, and explains that he lost his grandparents in the war uh, under the Nazis. Uh, and so then Roger says, so did you meet your grandparents? He says, no, I never met them. He said, well, let me introduce you. He says, I'm pretty good at imitations. I'm going to introduce you to your grandmother. Whereupon he does this sort of slapstick imitation of how he, Roger Waters, imagines some peasant woman, Jewish woman, presumably, you know, talking in Yiddish and uh, that sort of thing. Um, And Norbert is just looking at this guy and thinking, what is this? And at the end of it, uh, Waters says, there, I've introduced you to your grandmother. And I think Norbert was so thrown by this, he just went off to his room and phoned his wife and said, I'm with a bunch of lunatics. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is one of the shocking, maybe the most shocking stories is, is what you you just told about this impersonation. It's It kind of comes out somewhat of a bully, you know, kind of poking these people to bring it out in them, like to make them feel terribly uncomfortable. That's the other defining character um, of um, how Waters treats other people, and it wasn't just from these two two witnesses who went on the record either, that he is a bully, that he likes to press buttons, and, you know, he's got a, an, an enormous ego. He, he, he clearly is a complicated character, but people don't... My impression is that not many people like him very much because he is a bully, and uh, he does throw his weight around, and although there are sort of rather schizophrenically examples of of empathy with personal tragedies, he could be very difficult and and unpleasant. And uh, yeah. Mm. There have been been these arguments about Roger Waters for a long time, where people, some hail him as this great defender of Palestinian rights, of human rights in general. Others say he traffics in conspiracy theory. You know, he, he insists the white helmets in Syria are fake, for example. He's got a whole lot of theories. What you've done here is said that beyond the, that argument about his public positions, there is, for want of a better word, a kind of social anti-Semitism there that expresses itself in private. The stories you've just told, uh, sort of taunting someone saying, you know, about their Holocaust victim grandparents, but even at one point singing a little ditty that ends, the last two words are effing Jew. And and, and Bob Ezrin, you know, a big figure in the music industry was 
privy to that and heard that and tells you that. I think Ezra felt it was directed at him, uh, Jonathan. So, uh, sorry, I'm interrupt, but, but I mean, the, the idea, as, as it, I mean, it's a long time ago, and Ezra isn't, you know, clear after 40 years of precise details, but, you know, what stays in his head is this guy just kind of coming up with some ditty because he's a songwriter, is Roger, about Brian Morrison, uh, Pink Floyd's agent, who is also Jewish, and and thinks he gets some sort of sort of visceral delight out of, you know, testing Ezrin's reaction to a really sharp provocation. Effing Jew. Morrie is an effing Jew. It's kind of how do you feel about that? No, well, what Bob? I was going to say is, what does this do to the argument that has already happened until now, where in which he has said, Roger Waters, all this is political, that when he used, wanted to use the word, the K word, the word kike, on that uh, display, it was part of his big political project of anti-fascism, in which he is mocking fascism. That's always been his defence. He uses this horrible language. You know, there's one line in one of the songs about getting queers and Jews up against the wall and shooting them. He says that's all anti-fascist. What does it do to that argument that you have now uncovered that in private, he expresses views which those who heard it considered personally anti-Semitic? Essentially, you're asking, where does it leave his protestations that this is only about the Israel-Palestine conflict? Well, I think it leaves them on the floor, to be perfectly honest with you. And and here's the point. A lot of people have given him the benefit of the doubt on that argument. There clearly are some groups who will never be persuaded, I think, that he has a problem with Jews. But I do think, at least I hope, uh, those with a more open mind will see a character that behind his um, zealotry on the Israel-Palestine conflict does lie a whole lot of sort of subliminal prejudices about about how Jews are, not just Zionists. Now, he, he makes a distinction between Jews and Zionists, but of course, as we all know, most most Jews are Zionists, and, and, and Zionism comes in, in, in many different forms. But Roger doesn't really make that distinction. I mean, whether you want to call it anti-Semitic or he's got a problem with Jews, I don't really see the difference myself. He's got a problem with Jews. I mean, you know, that's, that's my view. To our listeners who don't know, you, you're also behind the expose on, on labor anti-Semitism, and you came under fire then from Corbyn's acolytes. Do you think that, are you kind of expecting the same blowback from people who are just uh, kind of continuing Jonathan's question, we're going to say, no, 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 you just misunderstood him? Well, it, it's only, whatever it is, uh, about 18 hours since we streamed, so it's early days. We, I haven't had anything <laughs> yet, um, but I, it will astonish me if I don't get some abuse um and uh it's sort of par for the course really there is there is quite an interesting thing going on with corbynism by the way while we're on it um and, and rogers has been part of this the extent to which some groups are, are sort of trying to revise the history of the corbyn years that essentially it was a smear it was confected uh, and actually uh, uh, this is a point i mean if if this film again uh, dislodges some of those people who are uh, sort of open to the idea that you know history should be revised over the Corbyn years. That, that you know, I'd be pl I'd be pleased with that because uh, because it's 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 a myth, you know, that there wasn't a problem in the Labour Party. <laughs> 
Um, I'm always wary of this because you never know what's in people's background. But I think, John, that you are not yourself Jewish. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. And yet this it feels like this has become something of a mission for you one way or another. Tell, tell us about that. Oh, gosh. Um, well, no, I'm not Jewish. Um, my kids are because my wife is. I, I mean, <laughs> it's a long story. Uh, if you really want to know the answer, Jonathan, uh, it goes back to when I was a teenager thinking of going into the British Army and I was watching uh, BBC reports about the Six-Day War and I learned about the extraordinary imbalance in forces and I was just mesmerised and I sort of thought, who are these guys that... Um, can win in six days against insurmountable forces. And I it just sort of got a bit hooked on all that and, you know, did the usual thing that lots of people of my age did, went off to a kibbutz, but just, um, and then just became really uh, captivated, I suppose, by the remarkable story of, of Jewish survival, resilience, and all of those things. And I know people will expect me to have a sort of throat clearing about, you know, the West Bank in Israel, and I've done all that, and I've got very strong views about it, but it doesn't change fundamentally the miracle of uh, Jewish survival. The film is The Dark Side of Roger Waters. You can get it uh, anywhere on social media. I'm sure if you just Google it, it will come up. Uh, it's just over half an hour long and extremely hard-hitting. Um, John Ware, a broadcasting legend, investigative reporter of huge acclaim. Thanks so much for coming on Unholy. Great pleasure. Thank you, John. I love that answer by him. That was a, a beautiful thing to say. And it really does, because I didn't want I, I waited for you to bring up, I thought it was a chutzpah to ask as an Israeli, like, you're not Jewish, why do you care? But um, I was waiting for you to ask that question. I really his answer like, was just perfect. Uh, and it reminded me, and it's not just because they're both Brits, but it reminded me actually a bit of Dame Helen Mirren's answer when we sort of yeah, talked did. about how involved you are with Israel. Once again, it was about 1967, the miracle, as he put it, of Jewish survival after mm. the Holocaust. A lot of John Ware's work, incidentally, was about, you know, related to Nazi war criminals on the run and things. And it did just make me wonder if, you know, there is there, there is a kind of body of people, a generation really of people, whose views of Jews and Israel were really formed in that period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, perhaps, uh, we, we, we say this often here, but I'm not sure the, the future John Wears, the generation of documentary makers and journalists coming up, have anything like that similar kind of attachment. But it's led him to make some really important work. And, and as you said, uh, I think many, many people in the Jewish world are going to be talking about this documentary because they've been thinking and talk, debating Roger Waters for a long time and now a whole lot of new findings on that subject. So great to have John Ware on the podcast. Uh, we are going to maintain our tradition, even as we sit here in our metaphorical podcasting sukkah together, mm -hmm. side by side. Traditions uh, do have to uh, be observed. And one of them, of course, is our awards. Normally, very often, it is you who ends up handing out the Chutzpah Award. So we're going to reverse that this time, because my eye was caught early on, really, uh, in the week by this affair in Canada. I think that we've talked about Canada often enough on the podcast, but people will have heard about the visit. Volodymyr Zelensky has been on the road. He's been going everywhere. He had a uh, the 
big honour of addressing the Canadian Parliament. As part of that, he was encouraged to applaud a Ukrainian citizen, a 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka, age 98, who had been called a hero by the Speaker of the Parliament, hailed for his service uh, fighting for Ukraine uh, in the last war. Well, guess what? It then turned out that the man in question, the honoured guest in the gallery of the Canadian Parliament, was a military veteran indeed, but his service had been with the 14th Waffen-SS Grenadier Division, a voluntary unit made up mostly of ethnic Ukrainians who had fought under Nazi command. And that unit has a uh, uh, charge sheet against it of having killed Polish and Jewish civilians, among others, who you immediately started thinking managed to invite that guy to stand in the public gallery so that Volodymyr Zelensky, you know, because he thought you should, was applauding a man with an SS uh, track record. Well, the Speaker of the uh, Canadian Parliament, Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons, Anthony Rota, put his hand up and said, yeah, uh, that, that he bears responsibility. So a bit of a chutzpah award for him for really not giving some thought to, if you've got a 98-year-old Ukrainian veteran, you kind of might want to look. Vet him. Just, just vet him for a yeah, second. Yeah, vet the veteran. It's <laughs> it's not rocket science in this case. So a chutzpah award to Anthony Rota, but credit him for at least I mean, first of all, I, I kind of want to have to give him the mention because this story almost feels like it was written for our podcast. Um, but, you know, he's not, I, I agree he should have he took responsibility and he um, uh, resigned, but uh, he wasn't the only one applauding. So maybe others should also yeah, say, you know, and fair. apologize. But uh, yeah, point. I mean, to, to just a, too good a story to ignore. Um, can we? Can I ask a question about Mensch? Because by the way, I'm on vacation. Not that I want to take the Mensch oh, award. So but you should the, oh, get the Mensch. No, that's not what I, I yeah, am self-involved. No. That's not what I was leading to. Just that I could have <laughs> sat this whole time, just looked at you doing the show and just brought up the Mensch award and that's it. Like that's what I could have been doing. Yes. You and not like working hard at the no okay I know you could have done that and instead heroically you <laughs> did turn up so I want to uh, give our mentor award to I think it's okay I think it's valid because we did give it to a teddy bear once so I think it's okay to give it to a dog right I think so but you I mean you are here you haven't actually met Freddie even though you've come here Freddie the dog in our household. Oh. He wasn't here when you arrived. He will be back here later. Or do you have another dog in mind? I, we can give it to Freddie as well. Are you okay with that? We'll yeah, give it. We'll, it's, we'll, it. we'll okay. Separate uh, uh, mention word to Freddie, um, and who agreed to leave the house to give us some quiet time to record the podcast. So we want to give this mention award to Buddy and Hartley, two dogs. The story comes from Michigan. A two-year-old toddler uh, named uh, Thea Chase went missing. Her mother, Brooke, noticed that and she looked for her daughter and she also noticed that the two dogs were missing. She was looking for them for hours and then she found uh, the two dogs and her daughter. Her daughter was resting on one of the dogs, kind of using uh, the dog as a pillow and the other dog was protecting them and this is a lovely story and this is what I wanted to tell you in Sukkot. I think it's fine. I think we can give the Mensch Award this way. Do you agree? I think we definitely can. Those two dogs protecting the little two-year-old girl in the woods. I mean, a little babe in the woods is so sweet. And and the first account I read of this was that, and I don't know whether this was from Thea's own description, age two, but the way the first news report I read of this said that she was using one of the dogs as a fluffy pillow. 
Oh, as she was sweet. lying in the woods. So it's an adorable story. Um, if you're not a dog lover yet, I think this will... Convince you. It will turn you. It will convince you because um, it's uh, an act of me- really menschlichkeit by um, the two dogs, Buddy and Harley. Well done. A mensch award on its way to you. Freddie gives way. He, he recognises that you have been bigger menches than him this week. Go so, save a toddler, Freddie. Yeah, exactly. Don't you know? Don't get any ideas. If you have enjoyed this episode of Unholy, do uh, rate and review us in all the usual places and channels. Do spread the word. And we will say thank you to Gaia Glaser, Omer Primat, Rom Atik. I'm not leaving your house. I'm just staying. Like I'm, I'm just gonna stay. Yeah, we've got another podcast. Even though podcast I got next the week. less comfortable chair, I'm just saying That's there's true. one comfortable chair in this room. I did not receive it. But, you know, maybe next week. <laughs> that, that is unfortunately true. It was partly just the setup here. If people could see, it is pretty, you know, the corners and everything else. It didn't really work another way. Okay, next week you get the better chair. Um, we will see you next week. Yonit's obviously going to stay here for the next seven days. We'll have to work around that. Um, but we'll see you with Unholy next week. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.